So I want you to imagine that you are in a, a job interview, and there are a couple of likely questions that will come up. Maybe they've gotten rid of these questions by now just because they're so, you know, they're softball questions. But the, the interviewer, interviewer leans across and asks, so what are, what are some of your greatest strengths? And you didn't need to prepare for this question because you have plenty of strengths to choose from. And so you begin rattling off your strengths. And then the next question comes, so tell me about some of your weaknesses now. And now this one you've prepared for. You're ready. For, you knew this question was coming. And so you begin to say something like, well... One of my weaknesses is that I'm sometimes too obsessive over having things perfect. <laughs> or sometimes I can be a bit too organized for other people's likes, right? We have come up with a way to turn our weaknesses really into strengths. And then we're just talking about all our strengths. And we do this because we don't want the interviewer to look down on us or recognize that we have some flaws. And we ourselves... We're not really comfortable with this idea that we have a lot of weaknesses. I find this in myself. I don't want to, or at least I don't want to admit those weaknesses to others because then they'll, someone else will see me and recognize that I don't measure up in some ways. Uh, and yet we do this more in more areas than just simply our own uh, personal strengths and weaknesses. We also do this in, say, our circumstances. And so someone asks us, more than just kind of a, a, a greeting, they ask us, how are you doing? And we're hesitant to tell them how we're really doing because we, want, we don't want them to sense some weakness in us, some weakness of faith, some weakness of uh, our being or our, our physical state or our psychological state. We are afraid of expressing some sort of weakness. We'd rather, we'd rather talk about our strengths rather than what's bad and what's lacking and what's difficult. Well, in our text this morning, we see these themes of strength and weakness. And what I think God wants us to learn here, and, and really throughout the rest of Scripture, is that rather than, than boasting in our strengths, we ought to embrace our weaknesses, because it's then that Christ manifests His strength in us. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis 32, verses 1 to 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may fa find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the camp, to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds and steadfast, of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. 
Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milkling camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those uh, are these ahead of you. And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, the big picture here is that the promises of God seem to be threatened. Will Jacob make it back to the promised land in one piece after he meets Esau? Will God make good on his promises to Jacob? And the answer that we find in the next chapter is absolutely yes. In surprising and a glorious way, God is keeping his promises. But I want us to center in on another theme and one that I think is unique to this chapter. And it's this. God designs our wrestlings throughout this life to make us simultaneously stronger and weaker. He uses the wrestlings throughout this life to make us less dependent upon ourselves and more dependent on Him. Stronger in our faith in Him and weaker in our faith in ourselves. He uses these to wean us off self-reliance and to grow us in God-reliance. So I choose this word wrestlings 
to refer to our struggles and trials because, number one, the idea and this word are present here in this chapter. But it's also a word which captures the character and life of Jacob. Think about it. He wrestled with his brother in his mother's womb and then grabbed his heel on the way out. He wrestled away Esau's birthright and blessing. He wrestled with Laban over his wives and over his pay. And now he wrestles with God in prayer as he anticipates facing Esau once more. And really, isn't this a good image for what our lives are? Wrestling for the Christian life? What is life but one wrestling match after another? We wrestle with our circumstances. We wrestle with other people. We wrestle with ourselves. We wrestle with God himself. This life is not a breeze. We are not simply passing through to get to heaven. We have not taken the broad and easy road that leads to destruction. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We will face fearful circumstances in this life. We will face wrestlings from now on until we die. And should we expect anything else? Didn't our Savior Jesus Christ face many wrestlings throughout his life until he finally laid it down and died for us? So we will face many wrestlings, but by God's grace and through learning From Jacob's example, we learn how we ought to respond to them. So in this chapter, we find a story of growing faith. We see God's faithfulness, and we see Jacob growing stronger in dependence upon God and weaker in dependence upon himself. And it's a story of grace. For Jacob sees God face to face and lives. So to walk through this passage, uh, let's, let's take these two fearful circumstances of Jacob and see how he responds to them. So we'll see two fearful responses, uh, two fearful circumstances, then we'll see his responses, and then we'll conclude with the results of these wrestlings. So fearful circumstance number one, Esau is coming, right? Before we get to the fearful circumstance, we see great comfort, however. What a change of scenery from the gloomy oppression under Laban to the heavenly hosts surrounding Jacob and his family. They're there for a reason, to comfort him, to assure him of God's presence and security for what he is about to face. So take first, take great comfort in this. God knows the fearful circumstances you are about to encounter. Not only does he know about them, he has ordained them. He knows the circumstances which lie in your path and has ordained that they be there. And prior to these trials that you will face, he has placed comforts and preparations for you. As with Jacob, so it will be with you who are in Christ. For every difficulty, there will also be God's provision and presence. Now Jacob knows he must face the consequences of his past, namely his brother Esau. And Rebekah's words are still rattling around in his mind. Your brother Esau comforts himself because he's going to kill you. This dark cloud looms over Jacob, this dread of what's to come, and yet he knows he has to face it. 
And even with the comforting angels, even with the knowledge of God's presence and His direction, we still fear difficult circumstances. And this is a common experience among us all that we will face these trials. Believer and unbeliever, rich or poor, powerful or weak, we will all face these fearful circumstances. But how do you make sense of these things? How do you make sense of the difficulties that come into your life? There are many who can't make sense of them at all. Some might chalk it up to just simple natural uh, processes, that there's no God and that there's no great purpose in this world, and therefore there's nothing to make of these things that happen to us, these bad things. They just happen. It's just the way that the world is. But, of course, it's rather self-evident, I think, that this kind of logic just doesn't hold. There, there's a law within us that tells us right from wrong. There's a knowledge from what we see in the world that tells us there is something or someone, rather, greater than it all, that there is a creator, that he is sovereign and good. And most of us can't help realizing that things are not the way they should be in this world. But think about some others who are perhaps Christians or do believe in God. Some that can't still, still can't make sense of these trials that we face in this life. Perhaps they have this view that for the most part, things in this life should be good and easy and comfortable. Maybe you have this, this view. Sure, there will be frustrations, but mostly, and as long as I am living a decent moral life, they think, God will help things go along smoothly. The really bad things won't happen to me. But friends, this is not what the Bible presents us. This is not what we see throughout Scripture or even in our own experience. Our world is fallen, corrupted, and broken by sin. There are cosmic consequences from Adam's sin, and there are consequences from our own sins. And this is why our world is in such ruin. This is why we face fearful circumstances. And as a result, this life is filled with challenges and toils, with wrestlings. We are pilgrims. We are not in a sprint. We are in a marathon with many, many obstacles. And this is the only way to make sense of the fearful circumstances we face. We need to have a right perspective of what this life will entail. If we don't, we'll be, be disappointed at every turn. We won't understand why. God, why would you allow this to happen to me? We won't understand why things aren't smooth and easy for us. But if we recognize the, broken, the utter brokenness of this world, then we can begin to make sense of us. And then we will be able to be in a right position to respond in faith, in the sovereign and good God who is making all things new. Who will one day restore his fallen creation and turn back the clock on evil. And he has begun to do so already. We're reading about his plan to do so right here in this text. That God is working his plan to bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham. Jesus Christ would come to undo the curse and the cataclysmic event to set things in motion would be his suffering and his death and his resurrection on the third day. We can face these fearful circumstances because God is sovereign and he is good and he is making all things new. But notice how Jacob responds to this fearful circumstance. 
He gives us a good model to follow. He responds with prayer and with wisdom. So Jacob is filled with fear and distress, and so he divides his camps into two just in case Esau attacks. Now he has this brilliant plan, which I think kind of models wisdom. And yet at the same time, you can't help but think that Jacob, again, is resting in his own strength, like he has time and time again, his own ingenuity to figure things out. But at least this way, one camp, he reasons, will be spared. And notice Jacob's prayer. Look at how he prays first. He says, Oh God, Oh Lord. And we might address God like this in a prayer out of formality or habit. But this is not just a nice kind of churchy prayer. This prayer is springing from fear and distress. This Prayer is springing from a groaning heart. O God of my father Abraham, O God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, there is a history with this God. He has dealt kindly and graciously to Jacob's family. And this is a God who speaks. O Lord, who said to me. In fact, notice what Jacob does in this prayer, what he models for us. First, he recounts the works and the words of God. Notice the works he recounts. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. And notice the words of God that Jacob recounts. Verse 9, you said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. And verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. These promises seem to be threatened by what's to come. And Jacob is having a hard time making sense of God's words compared to his own circumstances. So he's wrestling. He recounts the works and words of God. Second, he confesses his own weakness and unworthiness. Verse 10 again, All these things you've given me, I am unworthy of your love and your faithfulness. And verse 11, I am afraid. I'm not sufficient on my own to care for myself and my family. I'm afraid. And third, Jacob calls out to God to rescue him. Verse 11, please deliver me. Rescue me. Deliver me from the hand of my brother. O God of my fathers, O Lord who spoke to me, please deliver me. So friends, how do you pray? Or maybe the first question we must ask is, do you actually pray? Prayer is like the flossing teeth of Christianity. All the experts tell us over and over again that we should be doing it. We know we ought to be doing it. We feel guilty for not doing it. But the less and less we do it, the less guilty we feel for not doing it. So friends, do you actually pray? And then how do you pray? How do you enter into this communion with God in prayer? In your trouble, brothers and sisters, in your wrestlings, recount the history of God's faithfulness to his people. Recount the words of his promises to his people. Recount his great works and his great words. Confess your own weakness. Confess your own unworthiness. And cry out to God 
for rescue. For it's only when we embrace our own weakness in light of God's continuing faithfulness that we are ready to receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So, as a practical example, I want us to consider our own fragility as a church, our own weaknesses as a church. We are weak, right? We don't have many members. We don't have a lot of money. This is not a plea for you to give more money. Long term, we are unsustainable. We will have a financial report at our next family fellowship in June in which we'll have a clearer picture where we are. And you're like, Jim, why are you saying all this? this is, these are bad things. What are you doing talking about these things? I'm boasting in our weaknesses, right? Isn't this an opportunity to come to God and express our weakness and our dependence like never before upon Him? Our God has been faithful. He has spoken. We are weak and unworthy of all your goodness to us, God, but by your mercy deliver us. Work in our midst for your glory. So we have a small group, including the elders who pray each Sunday before our service at 915 in the back. And so I just want to ask that some of you be there with us next week for this time of prayer. It's nothing formal. We just use a guide and we walk through certain areas of our church and ministry that we uh, pray for. We just go around in a circle and we pray. And if your heart is is in that, and if you're available, if you're able to come, if you desire to express our weakness in that way together, then I want to ask you to, to join us for that time, 9.15 next Sunday morning, as we, as we call out to God in weakness for Him to work. Because we must be prayer. We must be those who pray. In every fearful situation, we must pray. Now, I'm going to give a, a short, short shrift to Jacob's other response here because we don't have enough time to get into too much detail. But let me just say, prayer does not exclude wise planning. These are not opposed. Wise planning and passionate prayer are not opposed to one another because what do we see Jacob doing? Some, some see it as a lack of faith in God. I kind of think he's just making wise plans for his family by sending these gifts to this brother of his who he is all but certain is going to kill him when he sees him. He's planning with wisdom by dividing his family up, bringing gifts to Esau. So there's the first fearful circumstance and Jacob's response. Now look at our second couplet of these. This one is a stealth attack. Some fearful circumstances are slow in coming and foreboding, and others jump on us out of nowhere without any warning. Jacob sends his family and the rest of his possessions away. And here he is again, 20 years ago. Remember, he was all alone in the middle of the night. No family, no possessions. Fearful and uncertain of what would come next. And God appeared to him in a vision there. And remember, Jacob had vowed, If God will be with me and make me fruitful, then he will be my God as well. Now the narrative conveys to us the sudden arrival of this man in verse 24. Now, do you have anybody in your family who likes to hide and jump out and scare the rest of you? They, uh, you're just going about your business. Uh, you, you're just walking around the house. You, you turn a corner, <laughs> and there they are, 
shouting at you, scaring you, and you come out of your shoes. That may or not be me and my family. Well, this is, seems what it's like. The man just jumps out from nowhere on Jacob's back. Jacob was left all alone, the author says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him there. Now, what in the world is going on there? Who is this man? Is it some stranger? Did Jacob wander into somebody else's territory and they're really angry about it? Or is it Esau? Has Esau slipped past the caravans of gifts and come to do the job in hand-to-hand combat? There's a, a mystery here. And the author doesn't explicitly tell us who this man is. And so there's some mystery there that should remain. And yet, this certainly represents another fearful circumstance for Jacob. There they are, rolling around on the ground, wrestling, exhausted from the fight. The man says, let me go for the day has breaking. Now take note of that. Have you ever been in a wrestling match? Have you ever wrestled someone? Uh, If so, how long did that wrestling match last? I wrestled in high school and matches lasted for a total of six minutes, broken up into three two-minute periods. So two minutes, you get a break. Two minutes, you get a break. Two minutes, you get a break. If you go through the whole six minutes. And if you did that, your lungs were heaving, your muscles were aching, you felt like you were about to die sometimes. And I don't know what time these guys started wrestling, but it seems like a lot more than six minutes, right? They're rolling on the ground for a long time, wrestling with one another. I imagine blood and sweat, aching muscles. But Jacob wrestles back and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. So Jacob is always after a blessing, right? Now the man does something interesting Here he asks him, what is his name? What is your name? Now at this time to know someone's name or to gain someone's name from them implies having some power over them, having some authority over them. So Jacob tells him his name and then the man says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel. For you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. So the old name Jacob The deceiver is gone. In his place, there will be Israel, the one who strives with God. And Jacob asks the man his name. But the man says, why is it that you ask my name? Do you want some control over me, some power over me? And there he blessed him. Jacob cannot have power or authority over him, but must submit to him. This is a bit confusing, isn't it? Who is it that has prevailed? In this match, the man or Jacob, Jacob wouldn't let go, but the man touched Jacob's hip and put it out of joint, knocked him out. It's as if Jacob is just clinging on for dear life at this point. And isn't it the greater who blesses the lesser? And only someone greater who has authority over someone else has the power to change someone's name. See, after the fact, Jacob interprets his experience as though he had been wrestling with God himself. For look at what he says in verse 30. He named the place Penuel, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
And this seems to be what the man himself indicates. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Where else do we see someone getting a new name? Well, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. And we learn several things from this seemingly odd event. Just take note of a couple of them. First, sometimes God's presence is uncomfortable. And second, in this life, we must cling in faith to God and seek his blessing. This is now the second time in this chapter that Jacob wrestles with God and both of them are relating to desperation and prayer. I love how the reformer John Calvin talks about this encounter. It is not said that Satan or any mortal man wrestled with Jacob, but God himself to teach us that our faith is tried by him. And whenever we are tempted, our business is truly with him, not only because we fight under his auspices, but because he, as an antagonist, descends into the arena to try our strength. This, though at first sight it seems absurd, experience and reason teaches us to be true. For as all prosperity flows from his goodness, so adversity is either the rod with which he corrects our sins or the test of our faith and patience. And since there is no kind of temptation by which God does not try his faithful people, the similitude is very suitable, which represents him as coming hand to hand to combat with them. Therefore, what was once exhibited under a visible form to our father Jacob is daily fulfilled in the individual members of the church, namely that in their temptations it is necessary for them to wrestle with God. And in another place he says, This passage teaches us always to expect the blessing of God, although we may have experienced his presence to be harsh and grievous, even to the disjointing of our members. God's presence is not always comfortable as we might like, but if we belong to him in Christ, we can be sure that he intends to give us a blessing and to change us for the better. And that's the result of these wrestlings with Jacob. Do you see that? How Jacob was changed. You see, God is changing us. And he's using these fearful circumstances to do so. Note some of the changes that took place in Jacob. We've already mentioned that he got a new name from Jacob to Israel. But it also seems that God has changed Jacob and made him stronger in faith. He's encountered God face to face and yet lived. God himself pronounced on him that he had wrestled with God and man and prevailed. How encouraging would all that be? But at the same time that God has made Jacob stronger, he's also made him weaker. Stronger in faith, weaker in self-dependence. So notice, a new day dawns for Jacob as he limps past Penuel, as he limps past this striving with God. Jacob would always remember his weakness, and he would always remember the gracious blessing of God to him, and Israel's people wouldn't forget either. As they stood on the precipice, ready to enter into the promised land, they wouldn't forget Israel's limp as they abstained from eating the sinew at the hip socket, they would remember to trust in the Lord. For it is by His strength and not their own that they will be delivered. Did you notice that? 
That prayer for deliverance in verse 11 is fulfilled by the end of this chapter. God does deliver Jacob. He has been spared from the dying, uh, from the powerful presence, from dying in the presence of the Almighty. He has been delivered as he had prayed, and now what should he fear from Esau? If you have faced God and lived, what would he have to fear from seeing Esau face to face? There's still this suspense of that meeting coming up in the next chapter. But we also have hints that Jacob is going to be okay, that he's going to be delivered. But do you see, friends, what is here for us? In our trials and tribulations, wrestle with God in prayer, clinging to Him in faith, expecting that because of Christ, He will bless you. And in all of those wrestlings, we must embrace our own weaknesses and trust in the strength of the Lord. Wrestling is a part of this life and will be till we die. It's an experience for the greatest to the least. And we should expect it. After all, didn't our Savior Christ suffer? Didn't He have to wrestle from birth all the way to death? Didn't Satan want to devour Him from the moment He was born? Didn't He wrestle with Satan, in a sense, in the wilderness when He was alone and hungry? Didn't he wrestle with the scribes and the Pharisees several times, just barely escaping their grasp? But in the end, they caught him and pinned him to the cross. He was defeated in agony. And though he pleaded with the Father to rescue him, to deliver him, no rescue came. At least not until the third day, when the earth shook and the tomb was opened and the power of God was made manifest. And friends, this is how we are delivered. Not by our own strength, but by the strength of Christ for us. For Christ wrestled the forces of darkness by himself and for our sake. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. And he rose from the dead in victory. And where is our strength now? What will we boast in now? Where is our strength for this life? It is in Christ. It is in the cross of Christ. It is in His death for us. Now consider again your strengths and what what it is you enjoy boasting in or taking pride in. And consider the example of the Apostle Paul who had, he says, a thorn in his side which three times he pleaded with the Lord that it should lead him. But the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. Not your strength, not your ingenuity, not your power. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes then, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together.